Welcome to the King of Glory Lutheran Church Education Podcast. We are a Christian community of faith located in Williamsburg, Virginia. For more information, please visit us on the web at kogva.org. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Um, welcome to Good God, Bad World, a seventh petition. Um, as you've seen the publicity, um, this is uh, Dr. Philip Swenson. And I'm Reverend Dr. Philip Keener. And uh, the two of us have been in conversation since October. Uh, Philip and his wife worship here regularly. They have a two-year-old boy named Ned. And uh, Marie is expecting. She's the one in the choir that looks like a sail in a full That's the wife. And during this class... He will become a father the second time. Yeah, yeah so that's so wanted to let you know because there might be um, he might be gone because he'll be delivering it not well. Yeah, yeah. So observing. Uh, if you can, uh, please join us in this opening prayer. Please read with us. O Lord, my God, who dwellest in pure and blessed serenity beyond the reach of mortal pain, yet lookest down in unspeakable love and tenderness upon the sorrows of earth. Give me grace, I beseech thee, to understand the meaning of such afflictions and disappointments as I myself am called upon to endure. Deliver me from all fretfulness. Let me be wise to draw from every dispensation of thy providence the lesson thou art minded to teach me. Give me a stout heart to bear my own burdens. Give me a willing heart to bear the burdens of others. Give me a believing heart to cast all burdens upon thee. Glory be to thee, O Father, and to thee, O Christ, and to thee, O Holy Spirit, we're going to be dealing with um, evil and the changes and chances of life, this prayer directs us in a very interesting direction. Did you notice? John? It seems to me it emphasizes reliance on God and trying to learn a lesson from whatever the situation is. Precisely, and that's one of the uh, one of the ways that those who would dare to defend God in terms of the tough things that we go through, there's a lesson to be learned. The only thing that we ask for God in this is deliver us from fretfulness, which might be that obsession about you know why why would this happen to me or why do why do bad things happen? If you can turn to your handout. Uh, we promised that we would be launching uh, from the seventh petition. And the whole, one of our purposes, and you'll see the specific objectives in there, one of the purposes is for us to think uh, in a very intentional way when we pray that seventh petition. Deliver us from evil. And uh, I'd like to throw it out for a couple of you to respond. When you pray, deliver us from evil, what are you thinking about? 
Yes, Carol. Um, I think it's temptations that will come in front of me. And which happens to be the sixth petition, and deliver us from evil. And, and lead us not into temptation. Lead us not into temptation. That's, that's the sixth petition, but deliver us from evil. Thank you. Any, yes, Gene. Give me strength. We're, we're going to face plenty of evil. Okay, so, so it's a given. Strength to face it. So no, nothing necessarily specific. Any, anybody else? I just think of the devil in the world, you know, that, that, that much like we just said, that it is causing havoc that can befall upon see, me. See, so. Mason reads way too much Luther. That's, that's <laughs> if, we can, if we can turn, do you have this handout, Mason? Okay, uh, let's go to Luther's large catechism, and let's take a look at how Luther spins the seventh petition. Um, so, but deliver us from evil, uh, 113. In the Greek text, this petition uh, reads thus, deliver or preserve us from the evil one or the malicious one, and it looks as if he were speaking of the devil, as though he would comprehend everything in one, so that the entire substance of all our prayer is directed against our chief enemy. For he is, for it is he who hinders among us everything that we pray for. First petition, the name or honor of God. Second petition, God's kingdom. Third petition, thy will be done. Fourth petition, our daily bread. Fifth petition, forgiveness of sins, a good conscience, etc. Therefore, we finally sum it all up and say, Dear Father, pray help that we be rid of all these calamities, but there is nevertheless also included whatever evil may happen to us under the devil's kingdom. Poverty, shame, death, and in short, all the agonizing misery and heartache of which there is such an unnumbered multitude on earth. Can I have an amen? Amen. Yeah. So, from that, we want to talk about the objectives of the class. So, we have, of course, we've been in conversation since October. We've been working on this. And so we have put together these objectives. And it's our hope that by the end of the sixth class, those of you who stick with us will do this. First of all, we'll have been introduced to the challenges that the problem of evil presents to society and government. Why do we have a Department of Public Safety? Yeah. Yeah. Safe from all first responders, 911. We expect those things to actually work. Government, how much of our national budget is spent on national defense? Because absolutely. Uh, the philosopher, Philip? What challenges does evil present the philosopher? So, so mostly um, the challenge it presents the philosopher is, at least the Christian philosopher, is this problem of, um, is evil evidence against the existence of God or the goodness of God? Um, so we'll say a bit more about that uh, later today, but that's the main challenge it uh, poses to the, to the philosopher. And for the theologian, for the pastor, for the pastoral counselor, 
the challenge is, um, if I have faith and trust in God, all things work together for good for those. How, how do we navigate that when pain becomes intractable? When our lives are broken by the death of someone that has been with us uh, for most of our lives, or tragically, when a young man is taken in an accident. And then finally, um, for the Christian, um, this is a quote from Jürgen Moltmann, uh, who wrote a classic, uh, The Crucified God, uh, back in the 70s. All Christian theology and all Christian life is basically an answer to the question which Jesus asked when he died. And what was that question? Why Yes, Linda. Why have you that, that sense of abandonment? <clears throat> to be able to articulate the mainstreams of Old Testament and New Testament theology as, as an explanation of and response to evil. So two classes, um, the third class and the fifth class, the third class is going to be the Old Testament. We're going to take a look at the Old Testament. Evil and the justice of God and how evil is a thread that uh, prompts God to act in very distinctive ways and his response to that. The fifth class will be on the New Testament and we'll take a look uh, specifically at those key passages, primarily John chapter 9. Uh, why was this man born blind? Was it his sin or his parents' sin? Um, and then um, we'll have been introduced to the primary philosophical arguments about a good God and a bad world. And that's where uh, Philip Swenson is going to be talking about specifically uh, in the second class and the fourth class. Uh, did you notice how he identified himself as a philosopher? Did anybody notice the adjective? Christian. Christian. So, so we need to understand that basic orientation. So, um, yeah. So the two um, the two particular um, arguments we'll talk about are one the what's called the argument from evil, which is just you know how can you know th this argument says look, given the amount of evil you see in the world, um, there couldn't be an all good, all powerful God. And then the other argument that we'll talk about is. Uh, what's called the problem of divine hiddenness, which says, look, given how hard it is to tell um, that God exists, um, given how hard it is to find a relationship with God, um, there couldn't be an all-good or all-loving God. So we'll look at, we'll discuss both of those arguments and look at responses to both of those arguments. So how many of you may have children or grandchildren who might be where uh, Philip described people to be? Uh, children and grandchildren who struggle with the Christian faith. Okay, did you see the hands? I mean, so, so that, and that's why I thought having him being here might help enrich our conversation with our children uh, in terms of when they come and throw those arguments at us. Then, to understand the importance of theodicy for the Christian. Theodicy is an attempt to justify the ways of God if we 
if you say that God is all-powerful and all-good, uh, theodicy is where we come and say, God has a reason, or this, this it, it, defending God. And personally, for myself, uh, when I did my doctoral dissertation, it was titled, uh, Theodicy in Pastoral Counseling in Defense of the Indefensible. In defense of the indefensible theodicy and the pastoral counseling, with the idea that uh, when people came to a pastor or to a pastoral counselor, which I was identified as, that people at one level wanted to wrestle with God. They wanted to, where is God in my anxiety? Where is God in the struggles that I'm, I'm going to? Uh, and then finally, the one, and, and barely, it's, it's to, to celebrate life with a well-seasoned skepticism and an intrepid hope. <laughs> uh, anybody here under 30? <laughs> Yay! <laughs> there is one! <laughs> but my contention is that anybody who's 30, and I think you will also, has been around uh, the bush once or twice. And by that I mean you've lost your naivete. That, that um, you know that there are scams out there. You know that life is not fair. You know that our greatest intentions and our desire to help people sometimes is rewarded. Um, no good deed goes unpunished. Mark? Well, I think it's a little more sad than that even. <laughs> a lot of young people expect life to be convenient, comfortable, and... Um, no one ever to disagree with them. So anything that, that does not disagree with them or interferes with their plans or intentions that's right. is evil. <laughs> so that's not real evil, but in the world of today, you know, I have my will that's and right. I'm going for yeah. it and anything that gets in there. And how long does that last in the average young person? Until they're not young anymore. <laughs> 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 they have less control over their lives and the, the people who are in the You know, my experience is that sooner or later they face reality. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, any questions or clarification on the objectives? Yes. I have two quickies, not necessarily on the subject. The two Phils collaborated on this. Lesson for the next some weeks. So why are they back to back? That's just a frivolous question. The other one is for Dr. Svensson. What struck me about this class and the announcement was the expression I've never heard this before: moral luck. I was curious if you'd explain what moral luck means. Sure. Is that okay? To, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. So um, he has an elevator speech for that. Right. Um, oh. Okay. Yeah. So uh, moral luck. Um, is something outside of your control affecting how praiseworthy you are or how blameworthy you are uh, or how much you deserve. So say two people both shoot at someone and try to kill them, right? And one hits their victim. But the other, you know, a bird flies in front of the bullet and blocks the bullet. So the first person's a murderer and the second person isn't. If we think the first person deserves more punishment or more blame, then we're accepting moral luck. Just luck, whether there was a bird there or not, made a difference to how much they deserved or how blameworthy they were. So that's one of the things that I write about, is should we accept moral luck? You know, what should we do with 
with more or less. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank God for birds. Okay. Right. <laughs> <laughs> in the back there. Yes, I request a clarification in the beginning because we're starting this class. Since you're a philosopher, <clears throat> that we all understand that when philosophers use words like moral and luck and other words like that, it's just like mathematicians. They don't mean the same thing that we mean when they use those words. Every one of them has a very deep, complicated, specialized technical meaning for talking about philosophy. And so it's sometimes close, but it is when you say moral or luck, you don't necessarily mean what we are used to that word meaning within philosophy for reasoning about these things. Those words have a special meaning. Yeah, that's a good point. So there might be things that naturally sound like moral luck, um, just when you put those words together, that wouldn't count as what the philosopher is worried about. So we get, you know, we try to connect to what the normal meaning of the word is, but sometimes we'll take it in a slightly different direction. So that's so I'll try to say specifically what I mean when I use a term like that. Yeah, good. Can you finish the thought on your last bullet point because it didn't print? Um, it is um, celebrate life with a well-seasoned skepticism and an intrepid hope. The hope, because that's, I think that's what, uh, my hope is built on, uh, oh, that's right, nothing less than, than Jesus' blood and righteousness. See, that, that, that's the intrepid hope. Evidence to the contrary, that intrepid, I, I'm, I'm going to, Believe anyway, see, and that's that's what we go. Um, we can that that's unless we have that. There's little in life to celebrate most of the time. Okay. Any other questions? Thanks for the questions and clarification. Yes. You could be uh, a little uh, and say Christian philosophers like some people say military intelligence. <laughs> 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 that I was really happy to find when I got into uh, philosophy was that, you know, in the 60s and 70s, there was a big resurgence in Christian philosophy. And so now, if you were starting philosophy, you know, in like 1955, starting grad school, you would have might have been pretty isolated. But now there's a big community of Christian philosophy. There's a group called the Society of Christian Philosophers um, that I attend their meetings pretty often. Um, and there's just all this great work that you know, somebody like me can draw from in, in doing my own work. In, uh, it's, you know, you know, defending Christian uh, views or trying to make sense of Christian views like the Trinity or the Atonement or things like that. There's all this cool... So I'd say maybe 15 to 20% of philosophers are Christians, so we're a minority, but there's a lot of us and we're, you know, people are doing interesting, fun things. Yeah. yeah. Do you bring your Christianity into your classes at William Mary? Um... I suspect it affects what I pick to focus on, but I try to be very neutral. So, like, at the end of my class last semester, I took a survey um, and asked who thought I was um, a theist and who thought I was an atheist or agnostic, and it was about 50-50. So they really couldn't tell. So I think I did a pretty good job of being neutral. Um, so I, but it probably does affect, like, you know, uh, um, which which maybe readings I pick or something like that. Um, I would say. Yeah. Is that good or bad? 
Yeah. Um, I, I guess the thing is unavoidable. You'll only pick things you find reasonable. Like you're not going to assign something that, you know, you think this person has nothing interesting to offer, right? So, in fact, maybe in fact that I'm a Christian affects which readings I find interesting or worth talking about. I certainly assign readings by atheists and stuff, too. But, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, what about this class is unique? Um, so, um, this is, an, as we've said, it's an intentional collaboration between a philosopher and a theologian. And that's what our conversations have kind of focused on. Um, what, what might be the creative interaction between this Philip and this Philip in terms of getting our background? You've already mentioned, I think, that I'm twice your age, <laughs> which makes a difference. I mean, because I come out, and I come out of a Lutheran church, Missouri Synod background, and we'll let Philip in a minute talk about his uh, his background. So, Philip, it's yours in terms of introducing yourselves to the group as you would like to. Um, so, I grew up um, uh, evangelical Christian in sort of a charismatic type of church, and I was from a very young age interested in philosophical questions. So I remember like being nine years old and wondering, how can I tell if I'm dreaming or awake right now? Yeah. <laughs> I think, yeah. um, but I also remember wondering, um, you know, um, how do I know Christianity is true? How can I have free will if God knows what I'm going to do tomorrow? Things like that at a pretty young age. And my dad, you know, knew enough philosophy that he could talk with me about this stuff and get me into it. Um, and I only minored in philosophy in college. I majored in history, but I decided that was too boring, so I was going to switch to philosophy for um, grad school. And I was really lucky, um, partly because of what I said, that there was this cool Christian philosophy happening already. But I was also lucky that both where I went for my master's and my PhD, there were a bunch of older students who were Christians who were doing Christian philosophy already. And I didn't pick the schools for that reason. It was just kind of... You know, Providence, that where I went, there was lots of Christian uh, philosophers who could kind of, you know, yeah, yeah, or uh, religious luck, something like that, yeah. Um, yeah, so, um, and they were able to show me the ropes and, um, and um, introduce me to all this cool Christian philosophy, um, and Christianity is kind of a big part of what got me into philosophy, because I was always asking these questions, you know, how can I know that Christianity is true, and things like that, and that was a big part of what prompted me to want to do uh, philosophy. So that's a little bit about, and now I teach philosophy at William Mary, so a little bit about me. And for me, um, the reason I'm interested in this is um, what happened to my family. Uh, my sister Carla, nine years older than I was, am, um, when she turned 27, uh, she became bulimic and very anorexic, and that was complicated by a psychotic break. Um, I was a junior in college in Fort Wayne, Indiana. She was, of course, no longer able to work because of her mental illness. She was living with my parents. And uh, when I drove home that fall to visit my parents, I found my sister in the midst of an acute psychotic break. My dad said, Philip, the reason that God has put this on your sister is because you and your two older brothers, you smoke, you drink, and you do not tithe. 
And he said, if you start tithing, if you quit that smoking, if you quit that drinking, God will remove this from your system. Oh, my gosh. No, no. Oh. Oh. Can you explain, you too, that your father and both of your brothers were Lutheran? Right. My dad was a Lutheran pastor. Um, and that is what triggered my interest in mental health. Um, long story short, my brothers drove, they were both pastors in Mississippi at that time. They drove through the night. Uh, they got there at 10 o'clock in the morning. Um, my brother had vickered in the Twin Cities area four years before, so he knew the Twin Cities. We put my sister in the car, we took her to the Twin Cities, and by that evening she was committed to a mental health facility where she stayed the next nine months, and in those nine months had over 100 electroshock treatments. Oh my gosh. Um, when she was released, um, the brothers came back, and the psychiatrist said that, that Carla would not be able to live independently, that she needed to be placed in a nursing home because she was unable. So my oldest brother, we, we had no finance to do that. So my oldest brother, Richard, took her to his home in Jackson, Mississippi, where he had three little girls. The fourth one was coming shortly. And she lived with my brother for two years, in which time she recovered. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, moved back to the, uh, two years later, she moved back to the Twin Cities, got a job in the office pool at Hamlin University, and three months after, she, she was asked to be the, the private secretary to the dean of students. And, and she did just marvelous. She had bright, but, but this, you know. So anyway, so that is what triggered my interest in mental health. So um, I did a year at the Georgia Mental Health Institute um, as a chaplain. I did six months as a primary therapist on an adolescent psychiatric unit, which... Judy had hoped would take care of my adolescent issues. And then the other, uh, the other was six months on an inpatient alcohol and drug, and which helped me get in touch with my own alcohol abuse and the in, the encroaching alcoholism of my oldest brother. So and then um, so that was and then that is what led to a congregation in Atlanta, Georgia, who, when I accepted the call, I said one, one of the conditions was, would you be willing to support me in continuing my education? And they did. Um, they gave me time off to do an STD that went, uh, and that's not a sexually transmitted disease. <laughs> it was Doctorate of Sacred Theology, uh, and... Uh, and the congregation gave me time off. They paid my tuition. And then, incredibly, they also gave me um, two sabbaticals, a three-month sabbatical and a five-month sabbatical in order to, um, yeah. So, and then for 25 years, I worked um, clinically, in addition to being a pastor, as a pastoral psychotherapist, um, licensed professional counselor, at the Georgia Association of Pastoral Care. So that's a little bit about me and why. And then, of course, my dissertation was specifically on this issue. You know, how do we how do we help people in the midst of crisis, anxiety, broken lives? How do we help them find God in a way that they can uh, not only once again appropriate His grace, but also 
my intent was always to guide these people back into a worshiping community. Uh, I saw my relationship with a client as a stepping stone. My destination would be that they would uh, reattach to a worshiping community where the con conversation that we had could be reinforced on a weekly basis in terms of the words from scripture, the sacrament, and, and all that. So that's, that's neat. Uh, acting out a true... Uh, any questions for Philip or for myself? On, in terms of, does, that, does that give you enough? Yes. Uh, Phil Quinson. Yes. Uh, when you teach your class at William & Mary, what Christian philosophers do you refer to? Yeah, that's, so we'll talk about some of them next week, but um, some of the... So um, the people who are part of this uh, uh, Christian philosophy renaissance maybe in the last... Uh, 50 years or so. Uh, one is Alvin Plantinga, uh, and another is Peter Van Inwagen, um, uh, another guy's named Richard Swinburne, okay. uh, Eleanor Stump. That's it. Uh, there's a lot There's a lot of people involved. And, uh, yeah. I took uh, philosophy courses, too, at the New School of U uh, uh, in New York City, uh -huh. and uh, they would skip from the ancient philosophers to Feuerbach. Oh. Uh, who, of course, uh, is, was a Christian. Uh, but uh, the professor would say, there's a lot of Bach in that, but not much fire. Acting out a truce between these two disciplines, what um, you may have heard Luther's uh, famous quote about philosophy, uh, where he said, that uh, reason is the devil's whore. Um, given Luther's critique of philosophy and his famous phrase that philosophy is the devil's whore, it would be easy to assume that Luther had only contempt for philosophy and reason. Nothing could be further from the truth. Luther believed, rather, that philosophy and reason had important roles to play in our lives and in the life of the community. The 95 Theses, what were they intended to do? They were Theses for debate in an academic were given that. Uh, and then uh, his famous, at the Diet of Worms, unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. So plain reason was something that he, and so, um, so as you've already heard, that, that this whole, I, and see, what we tried to do with this picture was to kind of uh, caricature the, the, the supposed opposition, because the philosophers that are getting a lot of publicity are the atheists. They, they get, you know, um, and that's, as you hear, they don't rule the roost. You know, there's, there's, in the house, there's other philosophers, but this is this was to tweak people's curiosity. And then finally, um, an intentional confrontation with the most difficult questions of living on this planet at this time. So, um, you know, I can't, I have that. This, uh, the college, how many of you were at the early service today? Okay, most, so these are really true. Okay. Yeah, that's why you know them. Okay. Um, the colic. Um, 
talked about the children of Israel 40 years. And then it says um, that we who walk through the wilderness of this world. So what does that what does that refer to? The wilderness. We're walking through the wilderness of this world. I mean, that that describes the world that needs departments of public safety. That's that's why we need a national defense budget that can protect um, us and and our freedoms. So, um, and then uh, Isaiah. This this was the first lesson today. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, huh? Nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. See, that's the whole issue of theodicy. It's it's you know God has chosen this for me. Um, and I have to say, oh, you know, God, you know, as, as Pastor Harmon had three short phrases. Uh, God is smarter than you. Didn't he say that? Uh, God's will may not be your will. And, and, and there was one other thing. He knows better than you. <laughs> That's right. Thank you. So, uh, so it, it's, a, it's amazing that, like praying the seventh petition, deliver us from evil. By the time we get to that part of the Lord's Prayer, we're already on automatic pilot. But, but once you start listening to scriptures and our liturgy, it's amazing of how much our liturgy and our scriptures, and especially this time of the liturgical year, Lent, is directed at encouraging us, first of all, to encourage the evil in our own heart, our own sin. Uh, I mean, again, the confession of sins this morning was... It's tough. I mean, if we really listen to what we're saying about ourselves, and then also to be willing to confront with an intrepid hope of the evil that lies in our world. Um, so that's what we hope to do. And in a conversation, we hope that you'll be willing to bring in your questions as, as those things wrap you um, and start challenging the way you thought or what you felt you deserved. We hope that you'll be willing to share some of that with us as, uh, so we can talk about it. All right, so this is a, so we're going to spend a lot of time on these type of arguments next week, but this is just a simple version of uh, the argument from evil against the existence of God. So it just says, look, if there were an all-knowing, all-powerful uh, being, all-good being, we wouldn't observe the evil that we see in the world, the evil and suffering we see in the world. But we do observe such evil and suffering. So there isn't an all-good, all-knowing, all-powerful being. So this is a kind of simple version of what's called the argument from evil. So uh, we wanted to kind of just see what your initial thoughts on this. So how about we take a minute and think about how you would respond to this argument. You know, what? Think about what you would... Say in response to this argument, you can jot something down if you want, and then we'll, we'll talk about it in a little bit. So just take a minute. All right. All right. Um, okay, so any initial thoughts or reactions to this argument? Yeah. Well, it, it, on the surface, it sounds logical, but in the first statement, yeah. we say all good, all knowing, and all powerful. That, that implies that, that this being is as smart as we are and can interpret things the way we do. And if, if I were doing it, I wouldn't allow this to happen. So therefore, it can't be because, you know, who could be smarter than we? You know? Good. Okay, so you're thinking, look, um, the reason you don't think 
you'd see this kind of evil is because you think if I could prevent the evil, I would, right? But you're, but the thought, but you're, I think your thought is, but maybe God knows more than we do and would have a reason that we are to wear of. Not for, maybe, I right? Know okay, yeah, good, good, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so that's one of the types of response. So that's called what's called the skeptical theist response. And it says, God has reasons we're not aware of. Uh, for allowing this evil, right? Um, so that's one of the responses. For, yeah, good that we're going to talk about. Yeah. So if I accept the first statement is true, yeah. then I can also accept what's not written there—the notion that we have of original sin that God did in His goodness create a perfect world. Okay, uh-huh. but then man, okay, chose to sin, and you know that's our doctrine. That's not written there, but that's what logically to me follows from a true statement to the first. So, okay, so your thought is, if, what, what we should really say is if there's an all-good, all-powerful, all-knowing being, then the first condition of the world would be, would have no evil. Right. But, we can screw things up, right? Yeah. Um, and maybe God lets us screw things up, and that's uh, where original sin comes in. Okay, yeah. Well, the promise wasn't, the promise was, was everlasting life and a peace that we don't understand. The promise has never been that it's going to be easy. So, God thinking at a level that we don't quite understand is trying to pull us up. And we screwed up by trying to pull him down. Good, so why, yeah, so why uh, isn't, isn't the promise that it'll be easy? Or, uh, why, you know, why do we confront this, this bad stuff in the world, I guess? Because he's trying to pull us up. Okay, so there's some kind of end goal uh, that he couldn't get without. There's a bigger picture that we fail to, you know, mm-hmm. in our being, fail to uh, fully understand. Okay, good. So kind of going back to this answer of maybe there's something we don't quite see here. Yeah, over there. Yeah. Well, I just have to believe that um, the evil part is temporary. And yeah. this evil is not going to be the ultimate victor. The, the all-knowing, mm-hmm. all-good, all-powerful um, God has the final say. And we can't judge God by what's happening right at this moment. Um, there's, there's a big future coming. Good, so if we just saw... So this is, you know, how much is does heaven or the afterlife play into response? Like, maybe you think, yeah, this is a really good argument if all we had was now, but when you put, you know, maybe this won't, you know, this won't look so grim uh, in the light of eternity or something. Yeah, good. Yeah. Well, I'm going to take this in a totally different, Sure. and I'm going to ask a question as well. So all of these responses are coming because we have knowledge of a Bible, which is what tells us about the God we believe in. But if we're talking to people who have heard of this God um, and don't really believe it, um, and thus the Bible means nothing to them because really it was just written by man and they're saying it was from God, um, what is our response? Yeah. Because we can't use original sin because they don't believe in that. We can't use that there's everlasting life because they don't believe in that. We can't use that there's you know, a better thing for us, or that all things are going to work for good, because really that's just man's laws. And that, yeah. and you know, you're kind of foolish. Really, you believe that? 
So what is our response? Good. So I think um, so. I think the responses we've heard might rely less on already believing the Bible than you're thinking. So think about the response of um, God might know things that we don't, right? You know, forget the Bible, but just think about an all-knowing being. Think about how much you don't know, right? right? You might just think it's just independently reasonable that an all-knowing being who knows everything about what's good and everything about how um, the laws of nature work, about how physics works, you know, would, would have different reasons uh, than, than we do, right? You might think that's just reasonable. You know, it's reasonable to think, yeah, I wouldn't know what that being would do even if you aren't relying on the Bible. Um, or on, the, on responses that appeal to, to the afterlife, right? Uh, suppose I'm talking with an atheist, and they say, well, I don't believe in the afterlife. And I'll say, fine. Uh, but you're trying to give a problem. This argument's attempting to create a problem for the theist, right? right. For, for someone like me. Right. Uh, and I, so the question is, if there's a God, uh, is it reasonable that there'd be an afterlife? And I think, yes, it is reasonable. Okay. It's not, if there's a God, it wouldn't be surprising that an all-good God would create some sure. kind of good afterlife. Okay, that makes sense. Um, so, because um, if there's, this argument is trying to show that there's sort of a problem for the theist. Right. And if the theist can appeal to their own beliefs um, and say, no, look, if there is a God, it's not surprising that, uh, yeah, you want to jump in, yeah. Can you yeah. define theist in oh, sure. to a yeah. Christian? Good. So a theist is just someone who believes in an all-good, all-knowing, all-powerful being, or a, a perfect God, is, is how philosophers use the word. So Christians would be theists, but not all theists would be. Some theists would not be Christians. Right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. In the back, yeah. Not using the Bible. Right. Warning, truth and advertising. I'm a doctor. I'm a doctor of computer science. Okay. Computer science. The first... Implication is not well formed because if you accept it, then you have already accepted the conclusion of the argument. Because it's kind of begging the question that we could say, okay, there's this all knowing, all powerful being. I'm kind of tacking on to what Jim Vogler said from a logic point of view. I can't do philosophy, I can do logic. All right? You're saying that necessarily entails that you would never observe evil. And that's just coming from outer space. That's an assumption, a ground fact of the rest of your argument that of such a God would never let you observe evil. My short uh, Facebook Twitter thing would be, he can't save you if you're not real. Yeah. And then let them chew on what does that mean. But that first statement there, and this is when you get into this logic, that's, I'm begging the question, may not be the accurate thing to say, but you're accepting at that point that any God must never create an evil world, but you've already accepted the argument from the very beginning. And our adversary loves that kind of logic. <laughs> so, you're saying, so you're thinking, look, there's no reason to believe this unless I'm already an atheist. Or something. Is that the I'm the saying first, that the yeah. argument is yeah. set up so that the person posing it will win yeah. because you accepted the first point, which then says, right. all right, I buy into it. Right. And I'm saying, no, if we're starting with nothing... How do you know that this all-knowing, all-powerful God yeah. would never create a world that has evil in it? And of course, we would know he loved us before we existed. Yeah. He so. can't save us if we're not real. He has to create the world in order to die on the cross because he wants to give us the paradise we don't deserve. So I, then I think you're right that ultimately 
the first one has to go if we're going to remain. It's got issues. You've got to take it apart. But I think we, you know, it, we should be fair to the atheists and say there has there's some inherent reasonableness to this thought. Like, just imagine, you know, suppose you know, suppose, you know imagine you don't know you're going to observe a world and you don't know what it's like yet, and um, all you know is it's created by a perfect being. Uh, all good, all powerful being. Would you expect all the evil that we see? You might think, no, I wouldn't. Ex-, you know, it's, I wouldn't expect that. And I think that's where this get, does get its initial mojo. You know, and ultimately, I think you're right. We have to reject it. But, but I don't think it's sort of crazy for them to say. It's flawed, that, but it's flawed logic. They're they're giving you the argument itself gets you to buy in that evil proves there is no God because you accepted the first term of that logic. Mm-hmm. There's hidden, there's hidden assumptions or ground facts that they're not bringing out. Good, yeah. Did you have? Can we not use God? Can use an evil person or an evil situation for good to punish as a mirror or for His purpose? Good, yeah. So it's not like you're giving a couple different ones. So one is um, He's going to use evil for some greater purpose, right? Um, and then the question would be, well, what is that greater purpose, right? Or oh, and then maybe we say we don't know, right? Um, or but another one would be like the punish, like he uses evil to punish. Um, uh, that might work better for some evils than for others, right? right? When, when something bad happens to a really horrible person, maybe uh, that's the easier. We're going to take two more questions and move on. Okay, so okay, good. Yeah. And we'll spend more time. With well, my perception is, our feeling is. Why is there evil? There's evil because God gave us free will. Right. And he would love, uh, would desire for us to use that free will to worship him and obey all his commands. But it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And I've always wondered this. God says, I've made this. You can have everything in it except one thing. Now, why did he put that provision of you can have anything in the garden except from this one tree? And Satan took upon that and said, okay, you don't need to listen to that. And I think that's what started it. But I've always wondered, was it a test that God's, I'm going to give you free will. Right. I'm not, you're not a robot. Where you program, you follow all the commands, and it's like a robot. He wants us to have free will and would desire us to follow him. Yeah. And to that point, I think any parent knows you've got to give freedom of choice to your children for them to grow, even if it means they're going to make a mistake. If we're just playing out a script here, there is no growth of that. We're just playing our part, reading the script. And there is no good, good. So that's another that's another one of the big ones. So skeptical theism that you brought, you know, God knows things we don't. That's a big one. Another one is called the free will defense, right? The the reason for much of the evil we see is gonna be God allowing free will. So we're gonna spend a lot of time on both of those. And in the third session, the Old Testament, um, we're gonna be one of the themes that runs through the Old Testament is the whole thing of God testing his people and the people testing God back and forth. We need to move on. Um, Good. Okay. Okay. So I wanted to say now a little bit about why bring philosophy into Christian thought. What you know, what roles could philosophy possibly play um, in Christian in Christian thought? Um, so one is that a philosophy can help make sense of Christian doctrines and respond to arguments against central claims of Christianity. Right. So we just did a little bit of that. Right. We said you know what's you know what's a response? Uh, how can we respond? Uh, to this argument from evil, and we just did a little bit of philosophy trying to respond to that, right? Um, um, right, so that's an example. Um, 
Second thing, philosophy can provide evidence for at least some central Christian claims. So there's this argument for the existence of God that a lot of philosophers are excited about uh, now, um, which is called the fine-tuning argument, right? So there's this really interesting scientific phenomenon where if things had been very slightly different, so suppose the strength of gravity had just been very slightly different, well, then we couldn't have gotten planets. And if we couldn't have gotten planets, we couldn't have gotten anything like biological life, anything like the life that we, we know about, right? And, it, and that's just one fact, but there are very many of these facts. So if this, you know, the strong nuclear force had been a little bit different, we couldn't have gotten life, right? Um, so it looks like the universe was fine-tuned um, almost for life. Like, we, we're just balanced very in this very special way that we could have life, right? Um, so Christian philosophers are working on this as an argument for the existence of God, right? So um, philosophy, you know, I don't think philosophy can by itself like, prove that you know, Jesus rose from the dead or anything like that, but it can provide evidence for at least some central Christian, central Christian claims. Yeah. So are Christian apologetics and intelligent design theories, are those in the philosophical camp or the theology camp? Or how, how do yeah. you those? I guess I, I see a lot of, I think some apologetics at least is philosophy. Some might be more like historical, like, you know, what happened on the, you know, did the resurrection really happen sort of things. But some of it, at least, I think is okay. philosophy, yeah. Good. Um, third, can we go to the next? Yeah. Um, a third thing I think philosophy can do um, uh, is, and this may be more, more controversial, but help us interpret uh, scripture. Um, so in general, I think outside evidence uh, can help us interpret Scripture. So, um, Luther and Calvin both appeared to interpret Scripture as teaching that the sun goes around the earth. All right? And we know they were wrong about that, right? Um, well, how do we know? Because we got really good outside evidence um, that that couldn't be, couldn't be what it meant, right? Um, and so that, I think that's a case where outside evidence help, can help us say, okay, that's not the right interpretation of of scripture. Um, well, that's a non-philosophy example. That's the case where science helped us interpret, helps us interpret scripture. Um, so more controversially, right, you might think, um, look, we shouldn't interpret scripture as saying that God predetermines everything uh, because we have philosophical arguments showing us that that would uh, undermine free will, right? So if you think, look, uh, Scripture teaches responsibility and free will, um, then we can't interpret, given, given, given uh, what we learn in philosophy, we can't interpret Scripture as teaching that God predetermines everything that happened, right? So that might be a case where you try to uh, use philosophy to um, interpret um, Scripture. So, um, and a kind of related example, uh, so John Wesley, uh, when he talked about uh, Romans 9, and he considered this sort of Calvinist interpretation where you say, look, God predestined some people to hell. Uh, he just said, I don't know what it means, but it can't mean that. It can't mean what the Calvinists think it means. Why? Because that would make God evil, and God isn't evil, right? So philosophy might lead you in some cases to say, I don't know what it means, but it can't mean that. Um, and this might come up a bit during the Old Testament right, discussion. Yeah. You know, um, 
So you might have, you might think, look, I've got this great argument. You know, I've learned that it would be evil to predestine people to hell. Well, then Romans nine can't mean that God is predestining people to hell, right? Um, so that would be another case where you might use something you concluded in philosophy to help you interpret uh, scripture. But I think it also could go the other way too. Scripture definitely informs what I'm willing to say as a philosopher. So it could be a two-way street. Like philosophy could help us interpret the Bible. The Bible could help us figure out which philosophical claims we should just say, no way, I can't, I can't go there because Scripture teaches uh, that that's no good. Um, okay. And the last one is um, philosophy can help us think about what it takes for belief in Christianity to be reasonable. So a lot of uh, intellectual Christians have this problem with where they think, look, I don't have a really great argument that Jesus rose from the dead, or I don't have a really great argument um, for, um, for some Christian claim, and that could cause a crisis of faith. Um, but a lot of Christian philosophers have said, uh, let's think a bit more about what it takes to be reasonable. Maybe you don't need an argument um, you don't always need an argument in order to be reasonable in believing something, right? So why do I believe that there's a Bible on the table? I don't have some great argument for that. It just seems obvious to me, right? And uh, Christian philosophers have said, well, maybe belief in God or belief in Christianity could be like that. It's something that just seems right to you and is reasonable to believe, even if you don't have some great argument for it or for, or for all parts of it, right? So that's the fourth way. Do we have time to take questions on that? Or? No. No, okay. <laughs> Sorry. So, just accept that. Why philosophy? Why theology? We'll cover this very quickly. Uh, why theology? Because uh, we are people, um, we as Christians hold the Bible to be um, God's revelation to us, not just in terms of who Jesus is, but in terms of God's dealing with us. And the reason I have Cain up there is because uh, Cain is the second of four cycles in Genesis 1 through 11. The cycles are sin, judgment, grace. Cain is because I have older brothers who I was very envious of. That has become a very personal scripture for me. Uh, and and it also, in the Cain stories, where God is a psychotherapist and goes after Cain and says, those feelings that you have, Cain, are they reasonable? Should you really be feeling that way? Or tell me about how you're feeling. So, that, so that's, um, and then we go to John chapter 9, which is the, um, the man born blind. Uh, and uh, those are questions that Scripture raises and that scripture, I think, can inform us in a powerful way. And not only inform us, but become part of our own resources as we deal with situations uh, like a child that's born with profound developmental disabilities. Uh, or, or why a loving relationship after 18, 19 years suddenly falls apart. Uh, in our relationship with our Heavenly Father, uh, we have the right to question and complain. Uh, the Psalms are a powerful affirmation to any of us who've gotten frustrated and, and start climbing into our pity pot and saying, oh, wow, why, why is this happening to me? 
The Psalms are, are a wonderful place for us to identify, and we'll be taking a look at the Psalms. And then finally, the conversation in the context of the cross and resurrection gives meaning, if not understanding. And that's, that is, um, especially when we get into the New Testament, and, and focusing on not just the teachings of Jesus, but primarily uh, St. Paul in terms of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, um, powerful, powerful resources for us to understand what the theology of the cross is all about, which is a Lutheran signature doctrine, which I hope that uh, one of the things is that hopefully that you'll at least have a, um, that you'd be able to talk in the elevator someday. What is the theology of the cross that you'd be able to, this is what the theology of the cross is. Okay, and then um, the uh, uh, and then at this point we want to hand out um, if we can hand these out. This is something that we will have available every week for when they come in. So if you come in at the uh, if you come in at the uh, end of the um, second week, or if you want to invite people uh, that people can. Uh, It's worth saving just for that picture. <laughs> Anybody need? Do we get enough? Everybody get one? Okay, uh, we're going to walk through very quickly because we are we are recruiting. We are recruiting right now. So if you have an amenable spirit and have a cooperative, uh, we hope that you might join us, and that'll become apparent. Okay. Uh, March 17th, that's next week, uh, that's uh, Swenson, The Philosophical Approach to the Problem of Evil. We will discuss whether evil provides strong evidence against the existence of God, and we will explore several responses to the problem of evil developed by Christian philosophers. So uh, my hope is uh, that, that what we started here in terms of the conversation, right. which was really exciting for me, that, that you guys got into it. Uh, and then the next week is the Old Testament, Evil and the Justice of God. And Linda, the reason I almost came out of my skin when, when you said what you said, N.T. Wright, W-R-I-N-T. Wright, his book, Evil and the Justice of God. That whole book is written specifically uh, to reflect what you said. Um, and in fact, the final chapter is Deliver Us from Evil. And he... The second last chapter is Imagining a World Without Evil. So what you said... We can't judge until the end. Absolutely. That's what he says. Um, the, the next uh, week is... Um, Philip, you want to say something about divine goodness? Oh, yeah, so, so I kind of mentioned it before. Like We'll discuss this question, uh, why would a perfectly loving God remain hidden from many of his creatures? Right? Why, doesn't, why isn't it obvious to everyone that God exists? And is that a problem for Christians if that's true, if it's not obvious to everyone that God exists? And then on April the 7th, uh, evil in the New Testament, Jesus and Paul, these two pillars of New Testament theology courageously confront evil in the world without abandoning the world. Could it be that the community of Christ is a place where pilgrims not only learn survival skills, but thrive in the beauty of creation and the fellowship of the church? Theology of the cross becomes a primary focus in that. And now, yes. 
Is this quick for those of us who aren't here some one week? Yes, Lord. Is this going to be available on Facebook or? They said not Facebook because of what our conversations here. Okay. But it's going to be available in some platform on okay. the website. On the website. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Uh, but that's going to take a couple days to get. Well, that's fine. Yeah. I'm here today. Yeah. Okay. So. <laughs> <laughs> and then finally, um, the last class. Um, as a class, we will return to the seventh petition of the Lord's Prayer. Prior to this class, Dr. Phil and Dr. Phil will invite participants to meet with them at Panera early in the week to help design this final class. So who's, who's willing to meet with us at Panera? There's, there's, okay. It depends on the time. Yeah, one time is better. Are you buying? No, we really, because we we will kind of, we also would like, for those of you who agree to do that, to um, give us feedback as we go along. Um, we've, we've never worked together, um, and we don't, um, and we, we want to be responsive to what, because we feel that uh, especially the feedback that we've gotten that this class is probably going to be offered again uh, in some format. Uh, so so uh, who, can somebody write down those names? Um, hold up your hands again. Oh, part of the idea is we will want to know like what questions do you still want to address right. at that okay. point. Linda, Linda, who's writing down? Do you want me just to? Yeah, Linda. Yeah. I'll just check the people that. Do we okay. know yet when, when, I mean, you said during the week. Is probably Tuesday. Like, probably Tuesday in the week. I got John Falk. I got the Bakers. I got Judy. Judy. Pastor Gordon. Gordon. John. Okay. Caitlin, you want somebody who's under 30. <laughs> <laughs> it is, I mean, it's not by much. Uh, <laughs> I'm a lot older than I look. <laughs> Jim. Jim. Jim gotcha. Did you sign in? I Jim, did. gotcha. Pastor back. He didn't sign in. I got him. I wrote him down. <laughs> okay. Um, finally, a word about this class in Lent. Lent is a time to confront evil. Uh, unashamedly, unabashedly, confident that after Good Friday comes what? Easter, absolutely. The, the trump card, we hold the trump card. But in the penitential seasons, it's time for us to, to uh, not to wallow around, but, but to become very honest about the world uh, and that, that this, this world is available to tears. Uh, secondly, uh, the seventh petition is there not by chance. Jesus chose to end his prayer with that wake-up reminder. Evil, deliver us from evil. Um, why not Evil Friday? Why Good Friday? So we're, we're um, that's where we're headed. We're headed to a Good Friday, which which of all days should never hold that adjective, unless what? Unless we know. That's right. And then finally, once ugly but necessary job, we hope that this class will do that job. And then finally, if you join us. Um, in uh, his closing prayer. Together?
Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read them, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Ghost, ever one God, world without end. Amen. And we could change blessed to intrepid, couldn't we? An intrepid hope. That sounds like something Luther would say. <laughs> Thank you all for being here. Thank you for listening to the King of Glory Church Education Podcast. Our mission is to connect to God and His people, grow in faith and love, and live through service and sharing. Visit us on the web at kogva.org.